Welcome to Up-to-Date Talk, our weekly podcast featuring a discussion with one of our up-to-date contributors, a leader in the field related to a recent publication that we featured in our What's New section. We hope that this podcast series is helping you keep up-to-date with the latest medical literature. Today's discussion is Dr. Robert Wood, Professor of Pediatrics and Director of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and Professor of International Health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Dr. Wood is an internationally recognized expert in food allergy and childhood asthma. I'm Dr. Nancy Sokol, a general internist and senior deputy editor at UpToDate. Our discussion today relates to a paper by Byrd and colleagues titled Efficacy and Safety of AR101 in Oral Immunotherapy for Peanut Allergy, Results of a Phase II Clinical Trial, published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice in March 2018. So we're very happy that you could join us today, Dr. Wood. Yes, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Great. So before we get to specifics of the paper, which was a phase two randomized trial of a manufactured protein peanut product, I thought we could talk about peanut allergy in children in general and principles of oral immunotherapy. Great. So regarding peanut allergy, how common is it and how likely is it that a child will outgrow it? So peanut allergy is one of the most common food allergies affecting about one and a half to 2% of all young children. And as children grow older, it becomes the most common food allergy because it's usually persistent with only about 20% of children outgrowing the allergy by the time they're adolescents or adults. And that's different from other food allergies? Most food allergies are outgrown. So, for example, milk or egg allergy, the other two most common food allergies of young children, are outgrown in about 80%. So is it possible to desensitize someone with a peanut allergy or any food allergy using injection immunotherapy as we do for, say, hymenopterous stings? Well, the goal to desensitize is an active uh, research, as we're going to talk about today. But the allergy shot approach appeared in one small study published about 20 years ago to have more risk than benefit. So the last 20 years has been spent sort of looking at other approaches, including different delivery methods like oral immunotherapy. Okay. So how do you currently manage somebody in your practice with a peanut allergy? The current management is the same as it's been for a long time, which is strict avoidance of peanut and prescription of medications to be used in the event of a reaction due to an accidental exposure. So other than avoidance, there's no available preventive therapy currently? At this point, there are many approaches being investigated in uh, research, but no clinical practices other than avoidance and the ready use of medications. Okay. So let's talk also about oral immunotherapy. What's the rationale for it? How does it potentially work? Well, the rationale behind oral immunotherapy is like that of other allergen immunotherapies, which is to provide a gradually increasing exposure to the substance that you're allergic to. In this case, oral simply refers to eating peanut in a powdered form, starting with a very low dose and then gradually increasing that dose over a period of weeks to months. Mm -hmm. And let's also talk about the outcomes of immunotherapy in terms of the terms desensitization, tolerance, and sustained unresponsiveness. How do they differ? 
So desensitization is defined as having an increased tolerance to that food where you will be able to eat a larger amount than you could before treatment without reacting. You're still likely to react at a certain dose, so it's not really a complete desensitization, but at least a larger amount of the food would be required to cause any reaction. Desensitization is really thought of as a transient phenomena, meaning that once you stop the exposure, you are likely to go back to your original state of sensitivity. And tolerance? Tolerance is something where it really in the immunology community is referring to a long-term, likely permanent state of desensitization, where with or without exposure, you still maintain that same level of protection that you had at the end of your treatment. And that's something that we've not actually attained with any of the approaches that have been tried thus far for treating food allergy. So the goal of OIT is, is really desensitization, is that right? The realistic goal is desensitization. And then you mentioned this one other term called sustained unresponsiveness. And that is a term that was sort of created when we found we couldn't induce tolerance to define some level of protection that's maintained for at least a few weeks after stopping the treatment. Okay. So let's now turn to the paper by Bird. This is described as a proof of principle study. And how did the study design here differ from previous studies, if it did, of oral immunotherapy and peanutology? Well, the overall design of the study is very similar, and the things that were unique about this study were bringing forward a very well-standardized peanut product, referred to here as AR101, and choosing a dose for treatment that is somewhat lower than what's been used in, in other studies. And the goal for this product is to induce some degree of desensitization that would likely protect you from the kind of accidental exposures that might occur in day-to-day -day life, and hopefully do that with a better safety profile because a lower dose is being used. And just to sort of characterize the doses, in previous studies, doses of 1,000 or 2,000 milligrams of peanut protein have been used, whereas in this study, the maintenance dose was chosen to be 300 milligrams of peanut protein. And how does that translate into a peanut? That is just about one kernel of peanut. Okay. So who are the patients who participated in the study? How are they selected? So they're selected based on a history of peanut allergy and then initial testing that would include the typical skin tests and blood tests that we would use in the clinical setting. And then to qualify, as has been done in most studies testing treatments for peanut allergy, you underwent a double-blind placebo-controlled food challenge. And in that food challenge, you had to react at a rather low dose of peanuts. So it was picking people who were pretty sensitive, uh, reacting at a dose that would be equivalent to less than one half of one peanut. But they excluded those who had a life-threatening reaction. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And for safety reasons, particularly related to the dose given in the food challenge, where you're actually intentionally inducing a reaction, patients that had a history of severe or life-threatening peanut reactions were excluded. Okay. And how are the patients treated? They were treated with a sort of typical oral immunotherapy regimen, which starts with a very low dose, in this case, 0.5 milligrams of peanut protein. Given a dose on the initial escalation day that could get up as high as three or six milligrams of peanut protein, 
once you have been shown to tolerate that dose, you then take that same dose daily at home for the next two weeks and then come into the research clinic typically every two weeks to have your next higher dose given under observation. And then each dose you've tolerated, you take for another two weeks until you've eventually built up to that maintenance dose of 300 milligrams. But all dose escalations were done under medical observation. Uh, every escalation under observation, but all of the uh, other doses were given a- at home under parental or patient supervision. Right. And the patients receiving placebo, did they have any way to recognize it? How did they mask the taste of the peanut? Well, the uh, product masked the taste pretty well. Blinding these studies is always difficult, though, because side effects, even though most of them are mild, are very, very common. So, for example, if you're sensitive to peanut and you're eating a peanut powder, there's a very good chance you're going to have some itching in your mouth or throat that would occur in the active therapy and not the placebo. So there's always some worry about perfect blinding these studies and and honestly no way to perfectly blind them. Right. And so what outcomes did they look at? So the main outcome is the peanut food challenge done after treatment compared to the food challenge done before treatment. And what they found in the study was that a majority of the actively treated subjects did have a significant boost in the threshold of peanut that it took to cause a reaction after treatment compared to before treatment. And if you set a couple of different thresholds, one of 443 milligrams of peanut protein, 79% achieved that threshold. And if you pick a slightly higher bar, 1,043 milligrams of peanut protein, 62% of actively treated subjects hit that bar compared to 0% in the placebo group. But some of the placebo group did exhibit desensitization, presumably, to the lower dose. Is that right? That's right. So there were 19% who tolerated that dose. And the way the peanut challenge is done, that's not terribly surprising. That's a rather low bar, and your peanut threshold may fluctuate just naturally on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. But when the higher bar was set, then it really did separate the active from the placebo very, very nicely. Right. So among the patients receiving active immunotherapy, 22 of 26 experienced some adverse event over the course of the study. Is that an acceptable risk, expected risk? It is absolutely expected. Whether it's acceptable or not is sort of going to be subject to additional study. And the real question about moving this kind of therapy forward is, will the benefit outweigh the risk? And we know there's risk when you're feeding somebody who's highly allergic, exactly what they're allergic to. And that's going to boil down to more than anything whether the adverse reactions that were occurring were uh, sort of acceptable from a a severity standpoint and whether they were acceptable from a way that would allow people to continue the treatment versus having to withdraw because of unacceptable side effects. And what about eosinophilic esophagitis, which some patients developed? Can you speak to that? In this study, there was one subject in actively treated group who did develop eosinophilic esophagitis. Now, probably more importantly, though, 21% of the actively treated subjects had to discontinue therapy, and most of those were because of intolerable GI side effects. They did not have endoscopies done, so we don't know how many of them might have actually had eosinophilic esophagitis. Uh, But the the messages we would take away is that eosinophilic esophagitis, or EOE for short, is a possible side effect of oral immunotherapy. 
and that there will be a subset of patients in all studies, somewhere between 10 and 25% of patients who don't tolerate the treatment because of intolerable GI side effects. Whether they have EOE or not is not necessarily known. But unless you do the endoscopy. Unless, unless you do the endoscopy, exactly. So it is a very real problem in terms of moving this therapy forward because we do know that there's a group of patients, even with this fairly low-dose therapy, who are unable to tolerate it for the uh, GI side effects. And is the OE always reversible when you discontinue the therapy? Well, the numbers are small, but in the experience that we have to date, not just from this study, but from other studies with peanut and other foods, it does appear to be reversible. And just as importantly, that population of patients who had to stop treatment because of their GI side effects generally feel better within two or three weeks of stopping the treatment. Okay. So for those patients who um, did successfully get desensitized, uh, how is the desensitization maintained and how do you monitor those patients? Uh, the important concept here is that we really view this as an ongoing, very likely lifetime exposure required to maintain that desensitization. So in this study, the participants were offered the opportunity to continue taking the powder on a daily basis. And the expectation is that they will need to have that kind of exposure on a daily or virtually daily basis forever to maintain that desensitized state. And do they get monitored with IgE levels or any food challenges? Each study is different. In this study, there were no further food challenges. There were IgE levels that were done before and after treatment. IgE turns out to not be a very useful monitoring tool because IgE levels go up with exposure. So if you really looked at IgE, you'd think that these patients were doing quite badly for the first six to 12 months where their IgE levels go up considerably higher. So one of the needs of this field are really identification of good biomarkers that can be used to monitor patients long-term, and those are a major part of several of the ongoing studies that are currently happening. So in terms of these ongoing studies, what further information do you think we need to learn, if any, to feel comfortable about introducing this or supporting this in clinical practice outside of a research trial? So this is a pretty new field. So there are dozens of important questions to answer, and there are dozens of studies going on seeking to answer different questions. For this product specifically, the sponsor of this study is moving forward with phase three studies looking to get FDA approval for this approach in the course of the next two or three years. So there are now large studies. For example, there were 55 subjects in the BIRD study. The next study that's now been published in abstract form and presented at a couple of national meetings had 550 subjects with similar results. And the importance of that is, number one, you know, the FDA really wants to see these phase two kind of data replicated in larger populations. But just as importantly, showing that you can actually take this rather complicated treatment and move it from highly specialized research clinics out into less specialized clinics, which is really one of the key pieces of whether we're going to be able to move therapies like this out into general practice. With safety, yeah. With, with safety. So that's one of the encouraging things about what's coming out of the larger studies is that instead of doing this in five or 10 different uh, highly specialized sites, it was done in 40 or 50 less specialized sites. Okay. So is OIT currently being used for peanut or other food allergies in the clinical setting? 
Uh, OIT is being used. It is not FDA approved, and the guidelines that are in existence right now for our specialty still say that this should be a research-based procedure. But because of the fact you can literally buy some form of peanut in the grocery store that you could theoretically use to desensitize patients, it's uh, rolling out not in a huge way, but there are practitioners who are offering this in their clinic for patients with peanut allergy. And that raises issues about controlling the quantity of allergen that's being administered. I would imagine safety is a big concern. Safety is a big concern, and it is very different to buy peanut butter or peanut powder off the shelf at the grocery store than it is to have a very carefully manufactured product like those that are moving through the FDA-approved trials right now. Okay. So we look forward to hearing more about this as those trials start reporting their data. And thank you so much for sharing this information with us and participating in developing new ways to treat a very common problem in children. It's always a pleasure. It's an important topic and uh, an exciting area of research right now. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. We've enjoyed presenting these discussions to you over the past two years, but this segment concludes this series of up-to-date talk. This and previous podcasts will be available to you through November 2019, and you can listen through the podcast platform of your choice or by going to uptodate.com slash home slash clinical dash podcasts or searching UpToDate Talk. We will continue to feature concise summaries of important new clinical literature in the What's New and Practice Changing Update topics in UpToDate. Thank you.